The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Sounds of the Anteater Kingdom on 88.9 FM KUCI in Irvine. Hey everyone, you are listening to Tech Talk. This is 88.9 KUCI FM in Irvine. Uh, This is Tech Talk, once again, Monday mornings. Uh, My name is Kumar. Uh, Today we have another special guest, as always. I'm sitting here with uh, Gwen Schaefer, who is a PhD. Is it PhD or PhD incoming? No, I have a PhD. There we go. (sighs) I always get these (sighs) mixed up. You can say I'm a postdoctoral I'm a postdoc researcher. There we go. <laughs> and who's doing some really interesting research on net neutrality um, in conjunction with Professor Scott Gordon, uh, Scott Jordan, uh, another professor who we haven't had on the show yet, but we've done we've talked a lot about his work. Um, and we're going to be talking about net neutrality today, which is a popular topic as always. We've done this over the summer several times during last year. Numerous articles have come out regarding net neutrality, and you know, in 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 the recent, I think. Actually, just uh, this quarter alone, we've had some really interesting developments with uh, law legislation that's been put into, not put into effect, but that has been put up to be uh, looked over. We've talked about the COIC, I think it's the Copyright Something Information Something Act. But th- there's some interesting legislation. But today we're talking about something very relatively specific, um, net neutrality and the wireless medium. Uh, well, wired versus wireless, what have you. So, uh, let, obviously, could you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Gwen Schaefer, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Information and Computer Sciences. And, um, yeah, so we're <laughs> working on a series of studies related to wireless net neutrality. All right. So, let's start, of course, with the definition of net neutrality. We always have to start with the definition. What, what would be yours from what, you, you know, your own personal definition of net neutrality? Well, net neutrality... Um, pure net neutralists would say that the term refers to transmitting information through dumb pipes, so treating all content and applications equally. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have mostly the industry perspective, and those are the telecommunication companies that say things like, we have an incredible amount of bandwidth-intensive applications in use right now. And we've got to manage our networks because we have finite capacity. And in order to do that, we have to apply what's called quality of service. So the way Dr. Jordan and I are approaching this is sort of a middle ground. So we acknowledge the reality that bandwidth-intensive applications are in use and there are incredible demands on our network infrastructure. But our perspective is that it's not the telecommunication companies that should be making determinations about what applications get priority and where quality of service is applied necessarily. We think that those things have to happen, but they shouldn't happen without input from the end user. So we're saying that customers in a subscriber agreement should say, you know, you can offer me this tiered package and I can determine on my own based on how much I'm willing to pay, how much bandwidth I get, or, um, 
you know, what sort of quantity of data can flow through my network. So, I mean, from what I understand about your method is it advocates a lot more user control over what kind of services they get. Um, I think uh, Professor Jordan commented it's kind of like a block system. Yeah, I mean, you can a good way to think of it might be in contrast to what Comcast was doing with BitTorrent. And it's this sort of traffic throttling that kicked off the current net neutrality debate. So um, should I re... Well, yeah, we should uh, definitely talk about, about that. that. Okay. Well, BitTorrent obviously is a P2P program operates very differently from things like LimeWire or, you know, Kaza or the, the P2P we were familiar with in the past. Uh, for our users who aren't familiar with BitTorrent, it's swarm technology. You connect to multiple peers and get pieces of a whole pe- of the uh, whole file. Uh, it's, a, it's this incredible swarm technology, but it's also very bandwidth intensive. Yeah, exactly. So what Comcast was doing was throttling that BitTorrent traffic. So they were slowing down, degrading traffic based on an application. And we're saying that net neutrality should be application and content neutral. Right. So, well, with the Comcast case in particular, what the ISP had been arguing is this traffic is so detrimental to our networks that it's bringing down the quality of service in the area. And I think anyone who's used a cable ISP knows, you know, there's peak hours. Uh, you're you're sharing a pipe with the rest of your neighborhood. If one person is hogging up the bandwidth, the entire neighborhood suffers. Um, I know I've heard this from multiple people who've said, you know, well, our neighborhood, someone could just kept downloading stuff and it shut the whole neighborhood down. Um, how accurate are those kind of uh, statements? Well, it's certainly true that if you have a home ISP connection and you're online around 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., you're you will probably notice that your connection is slower. But what we're saying is if a subscriber is willing to pay for additional bandwidth so that they can use applications like BitTorrent, then that should be allowable. And so it's based on not the application, but it's the amount of bandwidth you're paying for. Right. So in in terms of that, buying bandwidth as opposed to buying a package, how does that differ, differ from the current approach? Because right now, let's say through Cox, which is the only ISP in Irvine, I can get either like an 8 meg package or a 10 meg package or a 20 meg package. Yeah, whereas, I mean, that's the thing is right now, ISPs actually do offer tiered services. So we're just saying that we need to extend that so that it truly is based on how much bandwidth you're buying and not what applications you're using. Right. So in that regard, let's say I bought a 10 megabyte or a, a 10 megabit pass package where I get 10 megabits of bandwidth. What would I do with that then? Would I then have certain services that are prioritized over others or? Well, one thing that we're looking at is this idea of discrimination. So we're saying that ISPs can prioritize certain traffic. And again, pure net neutralists might say this is not okay, but we're saying that some applications are lose their utility if you don't prioritize them. And an example of that is voice over IP. Right. So you are willing to wait, most likely, a few minutes for an email to arrive in your inbox. You know, if you have to wait a couple minutes, it's not that big of a deal. If you're downloading a web page, you're probably only willing to wait a few seconds or maybe 10 seconds before you are like, forget it, this isn't going to load. 
But if you're using voice over IP, you can't wait more than a few milliseconds for the person you're having the conversation with for their voice to come over the right. line. Otherwise, the application has no utility. I think it's the same problem with gaming or any sort of a any sort of a system where you have a application that requires extremely fast response times. Yeah, like real-time applications. So from our perspective, it's okay to prioritize that traffic. What is not okay would be if Comcast prioritized the voice over IP service it offers its own subscribers, but degrades voice over IP service from one of their competitors like Vonage. Right. So and what it would be is like I would buy my package and I would say, well, I want VoIP to be prioritized and I might have to pay a little bit extra for that, but I know my traffic will get through. Exactly. So you as the subscriber in your agreement are specifying that this is the traffic you would like quality of service applied to. And then at that point, it'd kind of be up to the ISPs to figure out how this would work out. In terms of an expense, do you guys have anything? I mean, based on like current numbers, I mean, it, it is Internet service is fairly expensive, uh, I think. I mean, you mean from for the consumer? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Comcast. Like right now, I'm paying twenty four dollars a month because I have a six. Like there's a, there's or Cox. You know, for the first six months after that, it jumps up to forty five bucks a month for I think uh, a ten megabyte pipe or ten megabit pipe. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a question for the economists, not necessarily for us as computer scientists. But a big part of that is lack of competition. You just said yourself, you have no options. I mean, you could do DSL. I think AT&T is the phone uh, provider Some here. areas, yeah, AT&T does provide. But most of Irvine, I've looked, and I've been trying to find, like when I was looking for housing, I tried to pick housing based on the ISPs I'd have access to. Most of Irvine, it's only Cox. Yeah, it's a real issue. There's a true lack of competition. And that's one of the things the Federal Communications Commission is trying to address in the National Broadband Plan. Uh, it's slightly off topic. Can we, can we talk about that briefly? Because I don't have much... Uh, I haven't done much research on the National Broadband Plan. Could you just briefly toss out anything that you might know about it? Um, well, the idea is obviously to increase competition and use broadband as a catalyst for job creation and economic development. Would it be like a government subsidy for small companies to do startup ISP work, or would it be a, like a government ISP? No, it's neither, actually. It's more a series of policy statements and a policy proposal than actual, like a government program. So it's the idea that um, we should have consumer choice, that there should be, should be a competitive marketplace. Um, I mean, I can actually probably find some stuff on it if you want to. No, wait. I was just okay. curious. Um, so let's jump back a little bit. We were talking obviously about traffic prioritization, quality of service. Obviously, the net neutralist, neutralist, my God, that is a tongue twister. Neutralists, yeah. <laughs> net neutrality advocates, <laughs> the EFF being probably the biggest example, have often said we should just let our pipes be free. It stifles innovation. I think that's one of the arguments I hear. Ironically, on both sides, both the ISPs and the uh, net neutrality advocates say, you know, it will stifle innovation. I think for the ISPs, they say, well, if you don't have quality of service, then people will not use the service, and then people will not innovate. And then on the other hand, you have you know the advocates who are saying, well, you know, if you stifle the kind of traffic, then people aren't going to want to deal with it. I think one of the biggest fears about this net neutrality, and we should, I'm hoping we can talk about this, is there is a significant difference between quality of service traffic management and then what? Have you seen the SaveTheInternet.org uh, campaign? 
Yeah. Where they're talking about prioritizing websites instead of services. Well, I think what they're talking about is the fear that ISPs are going to prioritize certain content providers. So if you're a big player like Google or Yahoo and you can afford to pay the ISP X amount of money, your content might be provided might be prioritized over a small nonprofit providing content to um, its page viewers. Sorry. <laughs> It is dry out today, isn't it? So I think that's the issue. It's um, if that's what I think that's what you're talking yeah. about. So I mean, and that's one of the big issues with net neutrality right now. As subscribers, we have a relationship with our ISP, right? They we download information that they transmit to us, and content providers have a relationship with the ISPs they use to send the content. But one of the things that ISPs would like to do is create a relationship between the content providers. And again, I'll use Google or Amazon because they're big players. They want them to have to pay to get access to the customers. The ISPs that you and I subscribe to want the big content providers to have to pay them to have access to their own customers. So does that make sense? Yeah. They want the content providers to have to double pay not only for transmitting the content, which they already pay for, but also to have access to you and me as consumers of that content. So just to be clear, this isn't necessarily something that the content the content providers would like because it, def- it I mean, it technically means they're paying more to get what they, for the most part, already have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and maybe the big players can afford to do it. I'm not saying that they want it, but for them, it's not as threatening it's the little nonprofits and like the, you could even say the individual bloggers, anybody who's creating content and a huge amount of content on the web is user generated. And if you have to pay every time somebody downloads your blog or if you're a nonprofit and every time somebody who's interested in the work you're doing accesses information on your website, if you have to pay for that, then that's a huge obstacle. Right. So, And you, um, just one other thing, you had mentioned about stifling innovation, and I think there is a concern there that if bandwidth-intensive applications are throttled or that traffic is degraded, as a developer, that might be a deterrent to creating some sort of unique applications that use a lot of bandwidth. I think one of the things with BitTorrent in particular is a lot of people have noted that it is a, it has a fantastic redundancy rate. Uh, since the file isn't stored in a specific spot, you don't lose the file. It's very difficult for a torrent, like a file on torrent, to disappear. You have to wait for every single person to stop downloading it. And in that case, it's a really good way of sharing information. It's a really good way of making sure that certain types of information stay active. And I think WikiLeaks is a pretty good example in the sense that even if their servers go down, if every one of their servers went down, that information is still flying around on torrents. I have also heard that Warner Brothers uses it for distribution because you can distribute the load across the network instead of having to do it server-based. Technically, with uh, technologies like BitTorrent, you don't even really need servers. You just need a tracker and then people who have the files. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great use of peer-to-peer networking technology. But I think with a on a network, at least, like an internet or a, a, like a private network, speeds are much higher. I mean, if I set up a really nice personal network, I could have speeds of up to a gigabit. At which point, you know, quality of service, I'm not as worried about it. I mean, granted, in a very large company, you're going to have to do traffic management, obviously. 
uh, emails and database queries are probably going to be a much higher priority than YouTube. But that's on a personal network. On the internet, how would you rank, especially the U.S.'s infrastructure in terms of its capabilities, in terms of internet speed and bandwidth? Well, there are quite a number of international studies that have been done that have shown that the U.S. is slipping in terms of broadband access, speeds, and cost. So I think the latest is we're somewhere around 15th in the world. Because I know there's certain countries where their speeds are much faster than what we have commercially available. And people pay less. And the reason for that, I think most people would say, is because there's more competition. Yeah, I think at least in California, we've got Verizon. I've said this many times. We have Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, Cox, and Time Warner. You know, there's about five of them and maybe a couple of smaller DSL companies here and there. I know in the Midwest, sometimes all people have are like Rogers or Comcast. You know, they've got one or the other. Yeah, it's pretty standard in the United States for a single market to have one internet cable provider and one DSL internet provider. And those are your choices, one from each platform. And as far as what the ISPs could do to do this, I know that like with Verizon, they've been pushing their uh, fiber optic stuff. But at the same time, I've also heard that they've stopped, uh, like they met their goals and they've kind of stopped doing more fiber optic development. Wouldn't it seem that one of the solutions to this whole debate is for the infrastructure to improve? Well, absolutely. But the question is, who's going to pay for it? I mean, yeah, obviously, it's going to be quite expensive. You're talking about replacing cable backbones that are very old in some cases. In fact, I mean, we've been using cable since uh, the Internet was born. Yeah, and one of the things we're looking at is this idea that infrastructure in general is migrating to IP base. So there's real convergence. So even our cell phone networks, which is the wireless net neutrality stuff we're looking at, they're shifting to 4G technology, which is IP-based. So, And by IP, of course, we mean internet protocol address. Yeah, exactly. So their traffic is going to be going over the internet as well. And that's one of the reasons why we're saying you can't ignore wireless platforms when you talk about net neutrality. All right. That's a perfect way to get into this. So wired versus wireless networks. Can we talk briefly about the uh, article that Professor Jordan put out? Why are they different in terms of how net neutrality is applied to them? Well, the technology is different. So there is an argument to be made for the fact that wireless networks require more traffic management. Because think about the fact when you're talking on your mobile phone and you're getting a connection from a cell phone tower. So every time you get too far away from that tower, the radio frequency has to find another tower to connect to. And it's going to do that by... Um, Well, it's either going to find another tower or it's going to try and amplify the power on your phone so you can continue getting that connection. So there's that mobility issue, which complicates things. I think one of the things that was, I can't remember which article it was uh, set in, but the idea that, you know, you can be in one grid and everything's fine. And then the next grid will be too overloaded and that's when you can get a dropped call. Yeah, or sometimes the signal can't find a tower at all. So then you're going to get a dropped call. So, you know, that's one issue that you've got to deal with. And also, spectrum is a finite resource. So our um, telephone signals for a cell phone, 
go over frequency a frequency in a spectrum that's owned by your wireless carrier or obviously someone they have a roaming agreement with. And there's a finite, you know, there's a limit to how much spectrum is available. Um, just so our listeners know, the spectrum is, you know, it, it's the amount of, it, it's the frequencies that you can transmit on. You know, you've got the AM frequencies, you've got the FM frequencies. Uh, I, I remember for a while there was an issue where your wireless phones at home, like your home phone, interfered with your uh, wireless network because they both operated on the same frequency. And, and there was a lot of these issues with how do we divvy up the frequency that we have? There's only so much. Yeah, and the, you know, I, I think the statistic is something like 85% of the spectrum that's used for cell phone coverage in the United States is owned by two carriers, AT&T and Verizon. Wow. I, I actually thought Sprint would have had a larger holding in all of that. Aren't they one of the older wireless networks? or? Well, yeah, well just... they might be one of the older, but they don't. You know, a, Sprint and T-Mobile have far less um, spectrum than Verizon and AT&T. Wow. Um, so with that, with that whole issue of the spectrum in mind, obviously we're talking about very limited resources here. So quality of service becomes much more important. I I'm sure all of our users have experienced this. You're on a wireless network, the speeds are slow, you keep losing connection, um, you know, you can't get to websites, everything slows down to a crawl, don't even think about doing YouTube videos. But I think the expectation from the users is changing. You know, more and more we are relying on our mobile devices for accessing the internet. And we're going to expect to be able to do all of the things in this handheld device that we can do on our PCs. So that needs to be addressed. You know, people are not willing to accept on um, their home computer that they can't use certain applications or that they can only connect certain devices. But for whatever reason, we have accepted that this is the case with our mobiles. And we think that has to change. So let's talk about this. Um, wireless devices as an access to the internet, obviously it's created a new set of problems. AT&T suffered uh, particularly, their ne their data network suffered when the iPhone was released because there was a flood of people flocking uh, to use internet-based services over the iPhone. And between the web streaming, and I, I know most of the smartphones I've owned don't even do full flash. They do like a 3GP or something smaller that they can stream, and it's more network-friendly, I suppose. Well, Apple actually won't support flash. Well, yeah, that's one of the issues there. But in general... One of the issues that AT&T had, from, from my understanding, limited as it may be, was there was just too much going over their network. Yeah, exactly. There are too many demands on the infrastructure. And they actually, and, and in fact, I don't think there's any wireless carriers that have an unlimited, unlimited plan anymore. They all have data caps on the bandwidth. Um... Well, I know, you know, I don't, I'm not that familiar with the plans. I mean, clearly, if you go over, they're going to charge you. Right. So... In regards to wireless, you know, uh, taking on the issue of wireless net neutrality, what what have what has your research been focused on so far? Well, Professor Jordan did a paper last year that looked at applications and concluded that on the wireless internet, users should be able to run any application of their choice if they are willing to pay for the bandwidth. 
So it's very similar to. And we're talking I- about wireless over mobile phones, right? Or yeah. wireless in general? No, wireless. Um, yes, over mobile phones, exactly. Right. Um, and this is also where the whole block plan came into play, I think, or, or at least some idea of it where, you know, you pay for the services you want to get over your phone instead of paying for like this big general package that may not necessarily give you everything you want. Or instead of being told you can't use Skype on your mobile, which is right now, I think there are Skype applications for almost every carrier now, but they're not, um, they don't support all the features that Skype would on your PC. Right. So we're saying instead of crippling applications, instead of limiting their functionality, allow users to do whatever they want as, if they're willing to pay for that bandwidth. Right. I think this is one of those issues that, you know, as if you follow cell phone development, one of the things that people complain about is certain features that are lacking. I know with the Windows 7 phones that came out recently, people complained that, oh, you can't hot swap memory. Uh, with Apple, people, I think with the iPhone at least, obviously they complained about Flash. One thing everyone seems to complain about is tethering, you know, the ability to you know connect your mobile phone to a laptop and get wireless that way. But what I've heard most often in 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 uh, conflict with that is how many people honestly use this service? How many people actually do tethering? Yeah. I think it's gaining in popularity. I mean, especially as we have so many Wi-Fi enabled mobile devices, you want to be able to get a, a broadband internet connection um, wherever you are. And so obviously tethering your cell phone is going to act like a modem and give you that connectivity that you're looking for on your laptop or you know your iPad. But I mean, in, in the sense that sometimes these services, they're quite specialized. I mean, not everyone is going to need on their wireless device um, dedicated bandwidth just for doing, let's say, a PuTTY, like SSH or SSL. You know, not everyone needs to dial out to a server from their mobile phone. But the, for those few people who do, I imagine they'd really enjoy having that service prioritized. Yeah, not even prioritized, but just available to them because certain carriers actually bar tethering. So... You know, what we're, again, what we're saying is we wouldn't accept an ISP telling you how you can use your devices at home. You know, an example would be you buy a computer at, for your home use and say your ISP is Cox since we're here in Irvine. You would not accept Cox telling you what sort of computer you have to use. Right. You wouldn't accept them telling you what sort of um, wireless router you can attach to it. You know, whether it's an Airport Express or a Linksys or a Netgear, you're going to use whichever one you want. You can hook up as many computers as you want to that home wireless network. Your ISP might not like it, but you can even open that signal and let your neighbor share your bandwidth. There's just a lot more freedom you have with a wired internet connection than you do with your wireless connection. So if we compare that to wireless, your carrier tells you what sort of phone you can use, right? You've got to buy the phone from them, right? either at a subsidized price or outright. Again, they tell you what applications are okay, are okay to use. Um, you know, there's just a lot more limits on your device. I do remember, though, when the whole idea of having a wireless, personal wireless network or even a personal network came out, ISPs were not happy about it. They did try to charge per computer or something to that effect. I, I do remember them not okay. being all too thrilled about, um, and I might be wrong about how this was portrayed because I know this happened when I was younger, but I do remember the ISPs being 
not very thrilled about the idea of multiple computers sharing a single internet connection. I don't know about that debate, but obviously the consumer won in that case, and we no. all, pretty much everyone has home wireless networks now. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's let, let's talk about some of the, well, let's see, it's almost 30 minutes in, so I, just to remind our listeners, you're listening to 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. This is Tech Talk. I'm here with Professor uh, Gwen Schaefer, who is a uh, postdoc, uh, doing wor- really interesting work on uh, net neutrality with a professor on campus, Professor Scott Jordan, doing research on net neutrality, wireless net neutrality, how net neutrality applies to cell phones, for instance, or other mobile devices. Um, and, and let's get into this a little bit. So your your current research, uh, your, your personal research, what you guys are working on right now, what does it consist of? Well, right now we're looking at the use of any device on a wireless network. So we haven't drawn any conclusions yet, but we're exploring different scenarios and considering whether or not they should be allowed based on net neutrality principles. Can we talk about those scenarios? Because I think it'd be interesting to kind of see how this would actually play out in a more uh, literal sense. Yeah, sure. So, um, okay. So right now, if I have a basic function cell phone with no bells and whistles... And T-Mobile is my wireless carrier. Mm-hmm. And then I decide, you know what? I really do want a smartphone. I want to upgrade to a fancier phone. T-Mobile is going to require that I get a data plan. Right. Even if I don't really want that. Or an example might be if I have an iPhone and it's got a Wi-Fi connection, obviously. And I work on a college campus that has ubiquitous wireless connectivity. So I don't need a data plan because to get online, I always have access to Wi-Fi. But AT&T is still going to require that I purchase a data plan. So that would be an example that most likely would fail our test because the consumer is being forced to buy a service that they don't need or want. So it would be more appropriate in those kind of cases, from what I understand about these uh, proposals, is when you buy the phone, you should be able to state outright, and the pricing has to be set up in such a way where it makes sense as well. I mean, if you buy, let's say, a basic data rate, and then you buy all these bells and whistles, and it ends up being more expensive than you know just the next higher package up, then the whole thing fails on a consumer level, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, what we're saying is that consumers should be able to use any device of their choice, as long as it doesn't harm the network. And carriers should not dictate which phones we use. And we should have, um, we shouldn't have to pay for services that we're not using. Right. And <laughs> Professor Jordan's previous research looked at running applications on devices. And, you know, it was the, like we were said before, determined that users should be able to use any application they want that's not going to harm the network, obviously, if they're willing to pay for that application on their mobile device. Right. So could we, if you could, uh, a scenario that does work, a good scenario in which both the consumer gets what they're looking for and then the carrier, uh, you know, has a setup in which they're not having to worry quite as much about how much bandwidth is being used. Like, what would be the ideal scenario? Well, the ideal scenario would be 
a situation in which carriers do not determine which applications and which devices are used on their networks without user without end user input. So we're you know if you think about net neutrality principles again we say that it shouldn't be the carriers dictating and we want end user control. So if you wanted to run, um, you know, one of the applications that's gotten some attention is Slingbox, which allows you to put television programming onto your and download it onto your mobile phone. And that's an application that's been blocked by pretty much every wireless carrier because they say it's too bandwidth intensive. So what we would likely say, and again, we haven't, you know, finished the paper, but what I'm guessing the conclusion would be is that it shouldn't be the wireless carrier that dictates whether or not you can use Slingbox or another bandwidth intensive application if you're willing to pay for that extra bandwidth in your subscriber agreement with the wireless carrier. It's got to be content neutral and application neutral. Well, let's talk about some of these services, for instance, these high bandwidth services. Um, From what I understand, what a lot of these service providers are trying to do is move more over the internet. There's more, fundamentally, there's more services being provided over the internet than ever before. We have Hulu, uh, Netflix, Slingbox, uh, Roku Box. There's a lot of these internet TV devices. Yeah, now Google TV. Google TV, and many of them are providing high definition, um, you know, they're providing, you know, high quality video, high quality audio. Um, They're offering to stream it over your home network. They, you know, sometimes they can even stream to phones. I know for a while, like the Droid phones, for instance, uh, are supposed to work with Blockbuster Online so you can watch movies on your phone. Um, How are these kind of more user, how is this user experience, the user looking to say, I want to do everything over this mobile device, how is that changing the face of this this, uh, argument, more or less? Well, one of the things that that gets into is the idea of vertical integration, and the Wireless carriers and um, the not just wireless carriers, I shouldn't say that, but the um, communications providers like Comcast and Time Warner and Verizon, they own an increasing amount of content. And so one of our concerns is that they will prioritize the content they own. So a good example would be um, one your listeners probably are familiar with, and that's the um, proposed merger between Comcast and NBC Universal. Right. So once Comcast, and we can assume that deal is going to go through, so once Comcast owns all the NBC programming, um, stations like Telemundo and Bravo, what is to stop them, if we don't have net neutrality rules in place, what is to stop them from prioritizing those programs for their customers over content um, that is produced and owned by one of their competitors, right? like CBS or Fox or whatever? Because I think one of the things we have to remember about in the way the internet works is you're not always going through only your network. You're often passing through other networks as well. So let's say I'm on the Verizon network, and to get to my content, I have to pass through you know, a Time Warner network. If the service I'm using gets deprioritized on their end, then even if I'm paying for it on my end, I'm still not getting anything out of it. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, we haven't really gone into this issue of service level agreements too much. But certainly, if we're going to prioritize content, if you're going to pay for prioritized content, then there has to be an agreement with the networks that your ISP peers with to honor 
that prioritization. And I think that's one of the larger issues at stake here is there, especially if you look internationally, there's a lot of websites that are hosted internationally. There's a lot of uh, diversity. You know, a blog, a, a server for a blog can just as easily be in California as it can be in Calcutta. Um, so in, in that sense, um, I don't know if you guys have done much, it, it, like, because it sounds like you have other research on the table as as it is. But with what you guys have looked at, could you think of any, like, what do you think about that in general? How do you get it so that ISPs, if you're going to have any kind of prioritized service, how do you make sure it's prioritized across the board? Well, that's a concept called non-discrimination. And that's the idea that ISPs cannot um, block or degrade services that compete with their own or charge inflated prices for services that compete with their own. So there's got to be a level playing field. Right. So there are non-discrimination principles that need to be applied. I mean, and, and if we can get that kind of a model to work in one country, is it likely that other countries might also pick it up if for no other reason than just to... I mean, I, I'm assuming that ISPs, like the larger ones, have clout. Uh, it'd be enough to say, well, like, you, it'd be enough to say, like, let's say uh, all the U.S. companies got together and said, look, we're not, we're going to do this non-discrimination thing. And if you don't, we'll deprioritize your traffic coming in. I mean, they could play a game with that, I assume. Yeah, I don't know. It would be really hard for me to speculate. The only thing that I can think of as an analogy is with the digital copyright laws. The U.S. sort of set the um, the international policy on that. Um, with digital copyright stuff. And, you know, once we had the digital copyright, um, digital millennium copyright, copyright act, um, all the Europe, the European Union and other countries adopted very sim similar regs. But I mean, again, that's a federal policy issue. And I think what you're describing is um, sort of an ISP self-regulatory thing, yeah. thing. Yeah. So it's hard to say. Um, so in regards to like we said, with your research in general. Uh, well, what have you found thus far? Uh, I, I know you guys are still tabulating research, but is there anything interesting that you found popping up with some of the things that you're looking at, uh, things you weren't expecting? Well, one of the things that was kind of surprising is we had thought that um, it would be a very, very unique cir circumstance that a wireless car carrier would block content because... From our perspective, we didn't think, why would they care about what messages are being transmitted over their their infrastructure? Um, but we've actually come across a few cases in which wireless carriers did block messages based on the content. Like messages, as in like yes. SMS messages, texting? I yes. Assume? So um, there, was a, there is a company or a nonprofit called Weed Maps. And what they do is they find... Um, medical marijuana dispensaries for people and it's an opt-in so if you want to get messages from them that's the only way they'll send you text messages but not too long ago t-mobile bl blocked um messages being sent from weed maps based on content that's really interesting because text messaging is you can't really argue quality of service because that's just a text packet 
That I assume there's not much bandwidth lost in a text message. No, I mean, and that sort of surprised us because we didn't think that would ever happen. And if you think about it as analogous to phone calls, it's crazy because your wireless carrier would never block your phone calls based on the content of your conversation. Yet it was happening for text messages. And that's not an isolated incident. I mean, we even came across a carrier that blocked, um, I think it was the... Um, I think it's called the Catholic Relief Agency. I'm not sure if I have that title completely right, but they sent out mass text messages trying to raise money um, for um, hate for people in Haiti, and those messages got blocked. That's really quite surprising, actually. I mean, and, and I, I think this is one of the other issues that comes up with net neutrality in general: um, information sharing obviously is very important to a lot of people. We're, we're moving into an age where the ability to move information around very quickly without fear of it being um, deprioritized or filtered is really important. Uh, for instance, recently, uh, I, I, I think our listeners should be well aware there was a recent skirmish between North and South Korea. North Korea fired shells into South Korea. South Korea fired shells into North Korea. It was an issue. Uh, there are countries that will not know about this. Uh, because the government has chosen to censor that information coming in and out. Um, one of the issues that I've come to be rather worried about recently is in the U.S., they, they're trying to pass a bill. I, sh- I really should memorize the acronym. I can't. It, it's COICA, Copyright Something and Information, I think, Control Act, or something weird like that. Essentially what the idea is that the federal government will have the power to block websites if they are considered to be uh, pro-piracy. Uh, if they either host pirated content or link to pirated content or provide some sort of a uh, a measure of pirated content, then the site can be blocked at the domain level for all ISPs within the U.S. Uh, we know that China aggressively filters the Internet. Uh, obviously, North Korea, I don't even, I'm not really sure there's much coverage well, at all. I mean, there's a little bit of a distinction there because what's driving this in the U.S. is the content owners, right? So it's the recording industry or the movie industry. And what's happening in the countries you mentioned, I believe, is more for they want to um, squash any kind of political dissidence, right? right? I mean, so, I mean, there's it's kind yeah, of different. Yeah, Ours yeah. is being driven by business interests. That's in the countries you mentioned, it's more about, um, poli- you know, the political control. Well, even so, on, from an advocate's perspective, either way, any kind of control of information flow is bad. Yeah, and I think, I mean, getting back, because that's getting a little bit out of the scope of the research we're doing, because we don't, uh, we're not studying copyright protection Obviously, or anything that's like that. Obviously, complicated but enough it's a, it's its a, But what might be a little bit related is the fact that it reinforces the need for net neutrality in the in the fact that, you know, right, so in 2008, it was BitTorrent that Comcast tried to throttle. Right. Or actually not tried to, they, they, they did, did throttle. The Sandvine program or whatever it was called. And, you know, so that's currently what they're concerned about. But we don't know what sort of bandwidth intensive applications could be developed down the road. So it's a little bit of a slippery slope. You know, it's BitTorrent today, but tomorrow it could be YouTube. So... I think, you know, this is, again, why we feel strongly that we need traffic management um, techniques that are application and content neutral. 
Right. Actually, I think this is what happened to Google TV. Uh, they offered the Google TV service, and many content providers are actually actively blocking Google TV. Yeah, but that's not a bandwidth issue. You are absolutely right. But it's because they are concerned about allowing their content to be viewed that way because they feel like they could be making money off of it. So why should they allow even though it doesn't, there's still ads, so it's kind of hard for me to understand why it's a problem for them. But they don't want to, quote, give away their content that right. way. So that's really um, not so much about the bandwidth of, from the ISP. That's a content owner decision. But, you know, that is a big issue. And again, it's vertical integration. Can we talk about vertical integration? <laughs> I realize that I, I don't quite understand what you mean by that. Oh, okay. Um, so it's when the same company owns the content, and distributes it. Oh. So they have total control over it. Right. Um, so I'm trying to think of an example um, that you may know about. Well, okay, so there was recently a fight between Cablevision and Fox. Um, and Cablevision is a, obviously a cable company and an ISP. And they pay Fox to carry their programming. Right. And there was a dispute over how much they should have to pay Fox. And because their contract expired while they were in these negotiations, when when consumers went on to Hulu, if you were a Cablevision subscriber and you went on to Hulu to download a Fox show, Fox uh, got Hulu to not allow you to download it. Does that make sense? Right. So they use their power in the marketplace as owner of the content to prevent subscribers of a particular ISP from accessing it. Well, th that's kind of what I meant with the whole Google TV issue. Even if you can get the ISPs to agree, um, if you have these larger content providers playing these power games, there is still going to be a very large issue of, well, yeah, I've paid for the bandwidth. You know, I got my package. I can finally get my prior my traffic prioritized. But wait, what's this? Why won't this broad? Why won't this content company let me see this content? Yeah, it's definitely going to be a bigger issue as more and more of us obtain video programming from the internet. I, I, I know it's probably out of the scope of things, but could I get your opinion on that? Because there is a movement away from the uh, physical media. You know, more often than not, people aren't watching TV at, on TV. They're watching it online. Hulu, Netflix, uh, Google TV. There's more and more of this transition to using the personal computer or the personal uh, portable device for accessing internet media. Um, how do you see this, especially with the way that these content providers are reacting? This is like with music. When music first started to go digital, uh, people freaked because they thought it would kill music. Uh, there's always a worry that, especially with digital, you can't control the information very easily. How do you make sure that you're getting what, you're, what you want out of it? What's well, your predict? If nothing else, what's your prediction <laughs> on this? Because you have done research, so. Yeah, I think, you know, again, this is really about the behavior of content providers, and they're going to have to negotiate some sort of agreement with the communication providers so people can get access to that content. And, I mean, I think the way we would approach it is that they should offer, as subscribers to either wired or wireless broadband, if you have access to content, then your carrier should not be able to prioritize their own content. So an example would be um, if I subscribe, if I'm a Verizon Fios subscriber, and Fios obviously owns a lot of content, and they could sell me video-on-demand services, 
it would not be fair to their competitors like Netflix or Blockbuster, who also offer video content streaming over the internet. It would not be fair for them, for Verizon, to transmit their own video content very quickly and at a lower fee than what they would allow Netflix or Blockbuster to sell to me. Right. Because then that's a clear disincentive for me to use those competitive services. Right. So that's what we're really concerned about. I can't say that I know very much about the agreements between content providers and um, the distribution services. It's just one of those things. It's an incredibly complicated game that's being played right now. And And it's interesting from the end user perspective because we are – Less and less frequent, with less frequency, with less frequency, we are distinguishing between cable and internet and phone because we can accomplish all these same tasks and utilize all these same functions on a single handheld device. So, you know, for the Federal Communications Commission to have different regulations for wired platforms and wireless platforms from an end user perspective doesn't really make sense. You know, if you're browsing the web on your phone or whether you're browsing the web on your PC, your expectations are the same. Yeah, obviously that's one of the things that we're trying, not change, but more than anything, I think people need to understand there are differences. I mean, obviously both of us, we've had background in working with networking, so we both know there's a big difference between the speeds you're going to get when you're connected to the modem and then if you're sitting downstairs and the router's upstairs and you're going through, you know, six inches of concrete in an installation. It's just, it, and for the exact same reasons, it's the reason that you come to the university campus and you can't use BitTorrent, but you can go home and it, for the most part, supposed mm-hmm. to work fine. Um and it's just one of those things I think that people need to kind of get used to this idea that the personal device is not the same. Uh, and I think just in general, the distinction between, you know, there's there's the wireless Internet that you enjoy at home. There's the wireless Internet that you can get over your phone. Then there's your phone's network, which are different. Y- you know, and there's it's an. Inc- <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are different, but I think I'm looking at it from the opposite point of view. We know intellectually that the technology is different, but the average consumer does not distinguish. Right. And so what Dr. Jordan and I are saying in our research is that the federal regulators need to acknowledge the fact that from an end user perspective, the experience is very similar. And the same sort of net neutrality principles should be applied to both platforms. Right. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. Thank you so much for coming on. That was a fantastic discussion. Oh, sure. We certainly hope, we really look forward actually to seeing the rest of your research when it does come out. And obviously, I'm a big fan of the research that you guys are doing, so I'm going to be keeping an eye on you. Okay, great. Uh, Do you have a personal website or something where uh, people could possibly keep up, or users, or uh, readers, listeners, (laughs) (laughs) where listeners could keep up with the work that you guys are doing? Um, Yeah, well, Professor Jordan has a website, and he'll definitely post our papers. Um, You know, you can get to it by going to um, the School of Information and Computer Science website and then clicking on faculty and Scott Jordan. Right. And we're going to at some point get like a bio page up for all of the people we have. And we'll, we'll put any relevant links on that, obviously, to make sure that people can come back and find your work. But um, any last remarks or... 
No, just that there's a lot of really interesting debate going on at the federal level. Um, I think at the beginning of our interview, you mentioned that there are some legislative proposals on the table, and we really didn't get into that. And I don't know how much you want to get into the policy. But one of the big issues right now is that Historically, the Federal Communications Commission has regulated broadband under Title I of the Communications Act, which deals um, with information providers. But I think we can agree that most of us don't turn to the Internet or subscribe to the Internet just for information anymore. That applies to things like getting an email account or um, using the news portal provided by your ISP. Because all of those things, there are a ton of competitive services for. No, no. Okay. Um, So, you know, most of us probably get our email accounts from Google now, right, from Gmail, or even Facebook is offering um, email service. So, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to regulate broadband under Title I of the Com Act. And what the FCC wants to do is reclassify broadband as a Title II service. And that's the section of the Communications Act that regulates common carriers, which would be like your telephone networks. Right. And that would bar ISPs from discriminating. Remember, we talked about this idea of prioritizing their own traffic or charging competitors higher um, inflationary prices for services. So if the FCC can reclassify broadband as a Title II service, it'll really change the environment, the regulatory environment. And that's the big debate going on right now. It's something else that we definitely need to keep a very close eye on. Thank you for reminding me about that. Like I remember hearing about that, but for some reason it slipped my mind. Yeah, <laughs> so that's really the catalyst um, for net neutrality as a policy issue right now. All right, well, thank you so much. Oh, sure, thanks Once for again, you guys me. are listening to 88.9 KUCI-FM. This is Tech Talk with Kumar. I'm here with... Uh, Professor Gwen Schaefer, who is a postdoc working with Professor Scott Jordan on some really great uh, net neutrality stuff. Uh, So tune in, obviously, uh, next week once again. Uh, We'll continue to have a lot of great interviews. um, And be sure to check out the podcasts online of both past and future shows. Uh, Up next is the blues disease. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of it and stay tuned. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide.